Good morning, and I greet you in Jesus' name, and I, too, welcome you to this service. Glad for you visitors that are here for whatever reasons, and we're glad for those that that show up every Sunday. We're glad you're here, too. So, uh, welcome to all. Turn with me to James chapter 4 this morning. A few Sundays ago, we were studying the book of James uh, in our Sunday school lessons, and... um, we had a just a short, brief discussion on this verse that uh, uh, piqued my interest in it, and I thought about it for several weeks afterward, and I am going to uh, share with you some of my thoughts on this verse um, as I thought about it and, uh, and considered it more in the, in the last few weeks. We're going to uh, read uh, chapter 4, verse We'll start at verse 8. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. And we're going to stop there. The, The short sentence I would like to dwell on this morning and flesh out, comes from verse 8, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. In our brief Sunday school, um, uh, just the brief discussion we had on that, um, the thought was given that in this verse it would certainly seem to lay the, the, the onus on us as people that if we wish for a deeper relationship with God, that's primarily our concern to make that happen. And... Um, some of that was brought out uh, in our Sunday school lesson this morning too. I didn't realize whenever I prepared this that our devotion on Sunday school lesson would um, tie in so so much with what I want to share this morning, but uh, it does a bit. So in in today's modern more modern Christianity and modern way of of thinking it seems to be that, uh, I don't know if it's actually said in this many words, but it seems to be the idea is that God is a God of love, and he is. There's no doubt about it. I, we could find many, many verses that uh, would declare that. But because God is a God of love, he will accept me the way I am, and he will overlook my many problems, which usually is a code word for sin. Okay, So God is love. He loves me so much, he just overlooks my issues, quote, quote, and that he will pursue me even if I will turn my back on him. Now, so the question is, is that true? Is that a true statement? So that sent me looking through the word to, to, to find out where that idea comes from, A, and B, is it true? And if it's not true, what do we do about it? So let's, let's, um, let's get started on this. Few questions we want to answer. Who is responsible for the steps in finding God and developing a relationship with Him? Does God pursue me if I'm not interested in pursuing Him? Here's another one. Does the time come when God is no longer interested in me? If I have turned my back on Him, does the time come that He is no longer interested in, uh, in pursuing me in any way? And then we want to end up with, uh, uh, just exploring just briefly, how can I have a meaningful relationship with God? So let's, uh, let's start here. Turn with me to Matthew 18. 
just a few uh, scriptures here that um, would lead us to believe or passages that would have the idea that God is a God that does pursue us. Okay, so we're going to turn to Matthew 18. We're going to read verses 10 to 14. Take ye that ye despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. How think ye, if a man have a hundred sheep, and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine, and go into the mountains, and seek that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoices more of that sheep than the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. All right, so just just a few thoughts here out of this parable. The bottom line lesson that Jesus is trying to teach from this parable is in verse 14. It is not God's will that anyone should perish, okay? And he came to seek those that are lost. He talks about here a sheep that has gone astray. I looked up that word astray in, uh, in a Greek dictionary, and that word astray has the idea of being deceived, okay? So the, the sheep was tricked. Somehow the sheep was led astray by some sort of trickery, all right? So it wasn't a deliberate choice of the sheep. It was, it was, it was, he was deceived. Also noticed in the context, if you look back at the beginning part of this chapter, he's speaking about offending little ones, okay? So the little ones that Jesus is referring to are those that are weak, in the faith, uh, new in the faith, and Jesus is really pronouncing some serious um, warning against being an offense to this kind of a person. So again, um, if you if you take the parable with the context, it seems like the the um, the emphasis is upon a lamb. A, a sheep that is not willful in his, in his string, but he has been deceived and he has been tricked and he has been offended and somehow he has lost his way. And God is intensely interested that this sheep comes back. I think, I think this parable, uh, is the outworking of the verse that we have in 2 Peter 3 9, where it says, God is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but he is long suffering to us not willing that any of us should perish, okay? So let's just leave that uh, for a second, and let's go to another parable in Luke 15. Very similar. There's actually um, a trilogy of parables here. We have um, the, the, the parable of the lost sheep in verses 4 to uh, 7, and that reads almost verbatim to what we just read, okay? So we have that. And we, and it, it summed up that there's much rejoicing when this lost sheep is found. Then in verse 8 through 10, we have the second parable about this woman with 10 pieces of silver, and she loses one, and then she lights a candle, sweeps the house, and when she finally fi- finds it, she's so happy about it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, and she says, rejoice, because I have found this piece that I had lost. And in verse 10, it goes, um, Likewise, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels when one sinner repents. Then we have the parable of the man with uh, two sons, the prodigal son, we often call it, the parable of the prodigal son. And that's uh, a bit longer, 
But at the end of the day, if you go to the end, we have one more time. The explanation of the parable is that this son was lost. He is found, and there's so much rejoicing because he is found. So the the emphasis is on the joy that comes from when when a, a lost person finds the Lord. Okay. The interesting thing is here in the first two parables the, of the sheep and the coin, especially the coin. Okay, can a coin lose itself? Does a point does a coin ever just jump out of your pocket and go hide? Well, no, it's just ludicrous. It doesn't happen. A coin can't lose itself. It was somehow lost um, against its will, if you will. Okay, and and the same with the sheep again, as much as in the in the first parable. I would suggest that the sheep didn't mean to get lost. It got lost because it's a dumb sheep. And it, it kind of got lost in a way that because he's a sheep, it just happened, right? In the parable of the son, the son deliberately made a choice to leave. There was a deliberate choice to leave his father's house. There was a discussion between the father and the son. I'm going to suggest something here, and, and, and you can correct me if you feel like it is wrong, but I'm going to suggest that in the first two parables, the lostness of the coin and the sheep depicts the lostness that every individual has by right of birth. We are born into this world lost. We, we really are. We, we, we have that inherent Adamic nature, we call it, that we can't, we, we can do nothing about. Every one of us were born with this problem. And of course, this is not my topic. We understand the whole period of innocence. We understand the, the age of accountability, we call it. And at some point, we recognize that we are lost and that we need a savior. I'm going to suggest that is what is depicted here in the first two parables, more the lost by nature. I would suggest in the, in the third parable, the lostness of that son was more of a choice. That son was in the father's house, and he chose to leave the father's house. And I would suggest that that probably more depicts a a person that has been a Christian, and he deliberately chooses, for one reason or another, to leave that state and spend time in the world's hog pen. But, again, I want to emphasize the the emphasis of these three parables can can be we, we can deduct the emphasis by what the end of each parable says. God is so glad when sinners return. If you look at the beginning of the chapter, we didn't read it. It says, "Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners, and the Pharisees murmured and said, this, this guy eats with these people. He shouldn't do that." And and then and then Jesus gives these parables. If, if, I think it's interesting that the publicans and the sinners drew near to Jesus to hear him. Jesus didn't beckon them necessarily. They came to him, but when they came to him, Jesus was more than happy to have a conversation with them. So, um, I guess I say all this to, to, to say this, that if you, if you take the parables in their context, and especially the last parable, 
We don't see the father running after the the prodigal son to the far country and and ultimately to the pig pen, but we do see the father waiting and longing for that son to return. And when that son does return, he sees him a long way off and he runs and he falls on his neck and he kisses him and he's so glad that the son returned. When the son drew near, as the publican sinners and sinners did to Jesus, the father was more than happy to draw near to him, much like our text verse says. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. There's one thing we should just mention here, and uh, I think Davy maybe brought it up in the Sunday school lesson with the, the whole thing of the potter. In any story, in any story that, in the, in the one of the potter in Jeremiah, or in these parables, any parable, a person has to understand what the parable is given for. What is the punchline of the parable? Jesus one time gave a parable of a king that sat down and he counted his, he numbered his army to figure out whether his army was big enough to fight the army that was coming to fight with him that had many more people. And in the, in the parable, Jesus said, now if he figures out he doesn't have enough people in his army, he will go to that person, that king, and say, hey, let's work out a treaty. Well, let's figure something out here because, you know, you're, you're going to smoke me anyway, so... Let's figure it out. Now, in that parable, was Jesus teaching that it would be okay for us to join the military? Not at all. He was simply using a story to make a point that when one becomes a part of the kingdom of God, he teams up with the kingdom of God on earth, the church. He should figure out that there's a cost here. That's the point that Jesus is trying to make in that, in that particular parable. There's another one, the unjust steward. Jesus tells a parable of an unjust steward. And he commends the unjust steward for his wisdom. Now, do we run away with that and say, hey, it's okay to pilfer money away from my boss because Jesus gave the parable of the unjust steward? Not at all. Okay, you get the point. In any parable, let's make sure that we understand why the parable was given. I'd like to go to two illustrations of two individuals yet that would that is an illustration of a god that does pursue people those two people number 1 the first one is the uh, the prophet Jonah certainly a person could deduct from that that little story that god didn't let Jonah get away and go to Tarshish did he he uh, he kind of caught up with Jonah there and you know the series of events, one of the best known stories in the Bible, ends up in the whale's belly and, and so on. And finally Jonah ends up preaching to Nineveh as he was as he was instructed. Now why did God do that with Jonah? Uh, why didn't God just say, fine, go, I'll let the fish swallow you and we'll just leave you there, you know? Well, Here's what I think. The Bible doesn't say this, but if you go to 2 Kings 14.25, there's one other verse about Jonah, and I'm going to read it to you. And this is breaking in the middle of a, of a, a broader story here, but here's how this verse reads. He restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath under the sea of the plain according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spake by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, which was of Gath-Haver. 
Alright, so that's the only thing we know about Jonah prior to his, to the book we have that is written about Jonah. My point is, I believe that, that Jonah was a willing servant of God. I really believe he was, and he was doing God's will, but then God said, Jonah, I want you to go preach to the people of Nineveh. And the humanness of Jonah overrode what he knew he should do, and he couldn't bring himself to do it. And so he devised this little plan and so on and so on. God knew that Jonah had a good heart. And we're going to come back and talk about where our hearts fit into this later. But God knew Jonah's heart, and he knew that with some chastisement, he could make Jonah a vessel that could be used for him again. We're back to the sovereignty of God, aren't we? Don't understand all this stuff, but God knew that. He knew Jonah's heart, and he went after Jonah, and Jonah ended up serving God well again. But even after he preached in Nineveh, he really struggled, didn't he? You know, he went out there and sat outside of the city and kind of moped a little bit. And, and it was it's an interesting story with almost an anticlimactical end, really. You kind of wish you knew what happened to Jonah after that little interchange with God, don't we? The second illustration I would like to point out is the Apostle Paul, arguably a man that was very dramatically pursued by God, struck down on a road, stricken blind, a very dramatic story of a man that was arrested by God. And Paul confesses, he said, I was chief among sinners. I persecuted the church, he said. A very wicked man, shall we say? But Paul goes on to explain this in First Timothy. He says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer, a persecutor, and injurious. All right, he said, I count myself absolutely blessed beyond measure because the Lord has used me in ways that are very profound. When I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and I was an injurious person. But here's why he said he obtained mercy. He said, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Once, once God got Paul's attention, Paul did an about face. He went 100% in the other direction. And he was a man that was powerfully used of God. Again, sovereignty of God, the ability of God to know people's hearts and understand things that we can't. But I do believe the reason Paul and Jonah, these two men, uh, experienced the pursuit of God the way they did is because God knew their hearts. And they were not necessarily, well, in the case of Jonah, I guess you could say he was willfully disobedient. But perhaps God knew that it was more of a human lapse. Okay, he just he just needed a little nudge in the right direction. And he certainly got that. Well, now let's just spend some time looking at some scriptures that would indicate the opposite. It would indicate that if we want a relationship with God, we are primarily responsible to pursue God. The first one is our text. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your heart, ye double-minded. This is very easy to understand. You want God to draw nigh to you? You first draw nigh to God. You get rid of your sin. You purify your heart. And I can expect a deeper relationship with God. Psalm 24, 3, very similar. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. 
who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, this man shall receive the blessing of the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. You just don't need to expound on that, do you? Uh, very simple words to understand. If God seems far away from me, it's not because God moved, it's because I probably have some cleaning to do. I have some purifying to do. I have some some things that I need to take care of so God can come back and dwell with me. In 1 Chronicles 28.9, we have David here speaking to Solomon during the transition of power there. And here's David's words to Solomon. And thou, Solomon, my son, know thou the God of thy father and serve him with a perfect heart. Now, I'm going to stop there. I want you to notice how many times, I didn't point it out, but uh, it, it came out in verse 24, or I'm sorry, verse 4 of Psalms 24 that we just read, how that you need a pure heart. Just think about how many times this thing heart is, is referred to as we go through this message. Know thou that the God of thy father and serve him with a perfect heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searcheth all hearts and understandeth all the imaginations of the, of the thoughts. If thou seek him, he will be found of thee. But if thou forsake him, he will cast thee off forever. Again, a perfect heart and a willing mind. A mind that is set to obey the Lord. It says, God understands the heart and the imaginations of the thoughts. D- did your mind ever play tricks with you? Or, or, or do, you, do you struggle with this or is it only me? To uh, conjure reasons for my sinful lapses, okay? I trick, my mind tricks me, okay? The heart is deceitful above all things, right? You can't trick God, can you? God understands that. And he's saying, I know the imaginations of your thoughts. We can't fool God. If we seek him, he will be found of us. All right, let's go now to um, 2 Chronicles 15, 1 for another um, illustration here. So here we have a man by the name of, um, of Asa that had just experienced a great victory over the Ethiopians by unbelievable, miraculous power. Okay, maybe I should just turn to that so I can get the the context context right. Second um, Chronicles fifteen. So yeah, if you go into fourteen, uh, verse eleven, it says Asa cried unto the Lord. The Ethiopians had come upon him, and he said, "Lord, it is nothing with thee to help, whether there is many." whether with many or with them that have no power. And he understood he had no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on thee, and in thy name we go against this multitude. O Lord, thou art our God. Let not man prevail against thee. And and God wrought a wonderful miracle, and uh, he, he prevailed over, or through through this miraculous deliverance, the Ethiopians were were spoiled and, and sent back packing. So then you come back, you come to uh, chapter 15 now, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa, and he said unto him, Hear ye me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you. Okay, now how is the Lord with them? While ye be with him, and if ye seek him, he will be found of you. But if ye forsake him, he will forsake you. Now a long season Israel had been without the true God, and without a teaching priest, and without the law. 
But when they in their trouble did turn unto the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found of them. Just very easy to understand. Asa, you want God's blessing, you follow God. It's going to work out for you. And uh, even, even though Israel was without the true God and without teaching and without the law, whenever they in their trouble remembered God, God was right there to pick up where he had left off. Very, very easily understood. Now, this, this, um, this little story of Asa has, a, has a, an undesirable ending. Okay, and we're going to come back and we're going to look at that just a few minutes from now. But things did not turn out for Asa very well at the end, and it all had to do with his heart. And, and we'll, we'll circle around to that later. The fourth verse I want to point out is in Isaiah 55, 6. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to his God, for he will abundantly pardon. Again, where's the onus? It is on us as individuals. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Forsake your wickedness. Let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. And what does God do? God has mercy on on these people. I would like to just um, emphasize in this verse. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. That's very easy to understand. We understand windows of opportunity. Now, right now at home, I have some hay laying. And the reason that hay is laying is because I'd like to make dry hay. And if this smoke will clear away and there's a little bit of wind kicks up, um, it's been fairly easy to make dry hay this summer because there hasn't been much rain, okay? But it's what we call a window of opportunity. I have this opportunity right now. So while I have that window, we're going to try doing this. Um, it's, it would be ridiculous for me to mow down hay whenever there's a, a weak forecast of 80% showers every day. That's no window of opportunity, right? Sometimes we're at an auction and we buy something because we, we hadn't gone to the auction and planning on buying it, but this thing turned up and the bid was low enough that we decided we're going to buy the thing because we, we realized we could have a need for this and we have this window of opportunity, short window, to buy something we could use and, and so we do so. Windows of opportunity. The same thing holds true, I think, with, with, with the Lord. I think we, we are gambling whenever we have a window of opportunity to get right with the Lord. Maybe the Lord points out something in our life that we need to work on. Or perhaps we've never accepted Jesus as our Savior. And we hear that, we hear that voice. That's a window of opportunity that we best not let go. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen for the fifth one. And ye shall seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. No half-hearted lethargy here, is there? God's telling these people that after 70 years of captivity, they would have a different attitude toward him. They would seek him and find them. And the reason they would is because they would put all their heart into it. The last verse I'd like to refer you to comes from Jesus' words in Matthew 11. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Jesus doesn't say, hey, I'm going to chase you down and I'm going to put my yoke on you. No, he doesn't. He says, you come to me. You come to me. And then we'll talk. Then I will give you my yoke and you will find rest for your souls. Now, just briefly, I would like to look at just a few examples of people who had this encounter with God where they 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 had served God and then they lost out with God. And and I just want to just want to briefly point out a few of those. We know the story of Samson. Samson's a strange Another strange story. Seems like a, a kind of an unwilling servant of God, one that's making a lot of mistakes along the way anyway. But the one thing he didn't do, he didn't cut his hair. All right, and that was kind of a big deal there. But we know that poor story where eventually Samson succumbs to that, that woman that he shouldn't have had, and she cuts his hair, and Samson loses his strength. But when she says, the Philistines are upon you, Samson, what's he do? Does he get up? And, um, and say, oh, man, I should have never told that woman that. No, he doesn't say that. He begins to attack the Philistines. But it says what he did not understand was that the spirit of the Lord had departed from him. So up to that time, even through the thick and the thin, where Samson is basically dancing with the devil a lot through all that, God stuck with him up to that point, And then it says the spirit of the Lord departed from Samson. Well, what happened to Samson? Well, he ends up in the prison, doesn't he? And he's grinding and he has his eyes plucked out. And they bring him into the temple and they are going to make sport of him, it says. But it says Samson remembered when he was between those two pillars. And he said, oh, Lord God, can I just avenge my enemies one time for my eyes? And God heard Samson. And he, 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 and he honored Samson's request. And Samson, it said, killed more people that day than he did up to that point. And if we go back to Hebrews 11, Samson is listed in the heroes of faith. God is a merciful God. God leaves us when we leave him. God comes back when we seek him. And Samson is a beautiful story of that. I would also just point out the, um, the character Zacchaeus. Now, there's a lot of publicans in the day of Zacchaeus, lots of them. Jesus ate with numerous publicans and sinners, it says. But I question, I really question, if Jesus would have came to Zacchaeus' house and if there would have been salvation in Zacchaeus' house that day had Zacchaeus not been so anxious to see Jesus that he's willing to make a fool out of himself, run up a sycamore tree, sit there, just to see Jesus. See, now Jesus has an advantage we don't. Jesus knew Zacchaeus' heart again, right? But Jesus said, I'm here to seek and save those who are lost. He said that in that very context. And Jesus looks up to Zacchaeus and says, come down, Zacchaeus. We're going to go home and we're going we're gonna to have a talk, okay? And they did that. And Jesus just is visiting with Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus is just getting smitten in his conscience. And finally he says, it, that's it. I'm giving back everybody that I've gypped out of money, and I'm going to give everything else to the poor. And what's Jesus say? Today, salvation has come to your house, Zacchaeus. But who made the first step? Again, I would ask. I would suggest Zacchaeus was the person that first pursued, and Jesus, in his, in his all knowledge, he invites himself to Zacchaeus' house. Okay, 
Now I want to just briefly look at a few scriptures that would suggest that a time does come where God no longer engages with people. The first illustration I would give you is in Genesis 6. This is uh, the time right before the, the flood. In Genesis 6 and verse 3, it says, And the Lord said, My spirit will not always strive with man. For that he also is flesh, yet his day shall be in hundred and twenty years. Now, if you drop down to verse 5, it says, And God saw the wickedness of man, that it was great on the earth, and every imagination of his thoughts, of his heart. Notice the heart there. The imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, let's just stop and think about that for a second. God makes the direct the declaration in verse 3 that his spirit is not going to strive with these people forever. And then the explanation is given in verse 5 why that was. Now, he instructs Noah to build his ark, and it took Noah what? I think it was 120 years to build that ark, something like that. If you go into Hebrews, it says that Noah preached to these people, or Peter, I can't remember where that is, but we know that Noah was this preacher of righteousness. For 120 years, he builds an ark and he preaches, and not one soul listened to him. Why do you suppose that was? I think it was because the Spirit had already quit striving with those people. I don't think there's anything for that those words of Noah to attach itself to. Now, does that mean Noah shouldn't have preached? Don't think so. But I believe that could be why there was no converts, as you will. No more people went into that ark than Noah and his family. And interestingly enough, the end times says, it says in the Bible that the end times will be characterized just like Noah's day. People will not listen to the gospel. Um, Paul tells Timothy that uh, in the end times, people will not endure sound doctrine but rather they will heap to themselves teachers to scratch their itchy ears. And in the next verse it says, their conscience thereby is seared with a a hot iron. Second illustration I would like to give you is in, um, um, well actually there's two of them. We talked about this one a little bit in our our devotional and Sunday school lesson, uh, this man Pharaoh where it said that the Lord declared that he had hardened Pharaoh's heart. Okay, now that's extremely hard for me to understand. The first five, I think, first five um, plagues, it said Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then there comes a time where it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. I really think what, what took place there is that because Pharaoh had chosen over and over and over again to forsake God, the time came where part of the punishment that Pharaoh endured was that God withdrew his, shall we say, spirit? Is that the way to, to word it? Somehow Pharaoh had a hard heart, and God somehow had something to do with that. And here we get into the sovereignty of God again and things we don't quite understand. But I think that was actually part of Pharaoh's uh, punishment, was that God gave him a hard heart. The other one I would point to is Saul. In 1 Samuel 16, 14, it said the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And here's the the one that is even more difficult to understand. It says an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. Now, does God send evil spirits on people? It's the way our King James reads. 
I don't know what to make of that, and so I probably shouldn't elaborate on it, on it a lot. But I'll just point out one thing. We live in an extremely godless society today, and I don't think anybody's going to argue with that. And in this godless society that we live, if there's one thing you hear more and more and more and more about, it is this whole thing called mental illness, okay? Why are so many people today plagued with mental illness? And that that runs the gamut. It can be, I don't even know how you diagnose this stuff, but it's amazing the amount of different mental illnesses a person can have. If you look how Paul act, I'm sorry, Paul. If you look how Saul acted after it declares that the Spirit of the Lord departed from him, it's not too far away from what is described as a bipolar person today. Okay? Just saying. And I wonder if a lot of the issues we face in today's world, is it because the Spirit of the Lord is not there? It is not there. It is gone. Now, you can take that for what it's worth, but I wonder if that could not be the, the, the case. Turn with me to Romans 1. This is probably the best, the best chapter that speaks precisely to the fact that a time comes when God does depart from humans. Verse 21 in Romans 1, Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, in their foolish heart, Okay, can I mention it one more time? The heart is described here as a foolish heart. Okay, what did the foolish heart do? It was darkened, and they professed themselves to be wise, but as they did that, they became fools. Now their foolishness that is described uh, as we go forward. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like a corruptible man, into birds, four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore, God gave them up to uncleanness, etc. Now, let's go over to, um, it, it describes in verse 26 and 27 the, the, um, the, the um, ungodly sexual um, perversion of these people. And then in verse 28, it says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Okay, so they had no desire to retain God in their knowledge. So... God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Now, when you do something that isn't convenient, what is it convenient for? It wasn't convenient for them, right? So because of the, these reprobate not minds, they were filled with unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness. There's a long list here. You can read through the list. But if you if you consider what happens to people that engage in this kind of behavior... They're hurting others, for sure. But you know who they're hurting the most? Themselves. All right? So these reprobate minds, actually, I believe the judgment of God comes upon them here because they they choose to do things that are not only inconvenient, they're actually harmful to themselves. Verse 32, who knowing the judgment of God that they which do such things are worthy of death, and not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. And that one I don't even quite understand. It would almost make it sound like in verse 32 that these people that engage in this stuff know the judgment of God, but they choose to do it anyway. Doesn't this hark back to our Sunday school lesson? You know, the people were given 
the, the verdict from God and they said, ah, nah, not interested. Well, I don't know. This, this chapter here in Romans is one of the most um, vivid uh, descriptions of, uh, of the day we live in today that it's, 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 it's pretty unbelievable how, how closely it describes what we live in. One thing we can deduct, God was not pursuing these people, and he had given them over to a reprobate mind, and I believe their decisions were based on godless principles, and they became a, a thing of self-destruction. I'll just point out one more, Second Peter 2.20. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it is better for them have, to have not known the way of righteousness than to after they had known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. Why does it say that? Why does it say that about these people? Well, I think, I think if we as, as Christians that have, that have tasted the heavenly gift and made partakers of the Holy Ghost, as the Hebrew writer says, we deliberately turn our backs on that. After we have received this, I think we gravely jeopardize the opportunity to return to the paths of truth. Now, I want to just stop there and talk about that a little bit. There's no doubt that there's been many people that have become Christians, have walked with God, have made grave mistakes, and come back to God. And praise God for that. Uh, the mercy of the Lord is unbelievable, and that has happened. And we probably all know people that that has happened to, or perhaps we could even say it has happened to us. But I believe the more methodically and more intentionally we as people turn away from the truth, the less likely it becomes that we will once again embrace it. It's one thing to, in our humanness, make a, a decision that is poor or sinful, and somewhat do that, what's the word I'm looking for? Unintentionally. Is it, can we sin unintentionally? I suppose that would be the word. Or, or kind of on a snap or something like that. It's another thing to deliberately do such a thing. And I think that's what, it, what is being um, described here in these verses. In last, in last Sunday's lesson, Jeremiah was, was uh, called not to pray for his people. I really pondered that in the last week, and I thought, is, is there such a thing as that happening today? Would there be some people that we, that have strayed so far, that if we knew everything, God would say, don't pray for these people. These are reprobate people, the, the door of opportunity is shut. Here's my thought on that. Scripture would lead me to believe that that time could come. For, for any given person, that he could, he could follow a path to a point where his door of opportunity is shut, even in this life. However, I'm not sure that we know when that happens. And I don't believe that intercessory prayer for people that have strayed from the faith, or, or uh, sinners, if you will, is ever wrong. Because if you understand the free will of God that God gives us, um, God allows people to make their own choices, even if they're extremely poor choices. And he lets them go. And the Spirit of God has a hard time connecting with that person, perhaps. But if we as faithful saints pray to God 
Now God has an obligation to us, right? He's hearing our prayer, and I think it's through our prayers that perhaps that spirit could again talk to these people that have left the faith. Now that's, I don't know if I have scripture to just back all of that, but it seems like that could be the case. So I'm not suggesting this morning that we should cease to pray for people that we really, really have a burden for. I think that would be, um, I don't think that would be the thing to do. I think rather we should take the warning and apply it to ourselves. Do I want to be ever caught in a spot where the Spirit of the Lord could depart from me? Is that where I want to be? And how can I avoid that? Okay. Let's summarize this now and analyze what we've just talked about. God is a loving God, and he is intensely interested in us, and he is not willing that we should perish. Ezekiel 33.11 says it well. As I live, saith the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? And I think we could put my name in there, your name in there. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I want repentance, God says. Paul says in Romans, but God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how much God loved us. Even while we were sinners, he sent a son to die for us. But the fact of the matter is, he has also given us a free will and he will not force that gift upon us. And if we choose to pursue a path in contrast for in to what God would have for us. And we know that. And I think that's key. If we, the more deliberately we know, we do this, God does not overact, override our free will. He, he lets us go on with that decision. And, but ultimately that connection that we have to God through Christ is severed. And uh, we are left in an extremely vulnerable state. On the contrast, though, God is greatly honored and delighted when we walk in honesty and godly sincerity. And we are interested in pruning away the carnality in our own lives and drawing near to God. Here's where we're going to go back to the pro, or King Asa. Later in Asa's life, another army came, and this time it was the Israelite army, came to fight against the, 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 the uh, country there of Judah. And so... Asa, he runs down to the Syrians this time, and he, he makes a pact with the Syrians to come and help him out in this, in this little, uh, this little skirmish he has with the, with the Israelites. Well, the prophet came again to uh, Asa, and he had something different to say to Asa this time. He said, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on the behalf of them, listen here, to them whose heart is perfect toward him. All right? Now, Asa didn't respond well to that. He got all upset. He punished the prophet. And Asa died a diseased man because of his poor choice. But what the prophet is basically saying is, Asa, you no longer have a perfect heart. That's your problem. Your heart is not perfect. Listen to this verse. In the parable of the uh, sower, Jesus explains the good ground is this. They are those who have an honest and Good heart. You think that might be the same as a, as a perfect heart? And here's what an honest and a pure heart does. It hears the word, it keeps it, and it brings forth fruit. Again, we hear the word, then we bring forth fruit. 
And unfortunately, I'm going to come back to say again, modern Christianity has cheapened and lowered the expectation of the Christian life to the idea where we can live half-heartedly, sloppy Christian lives. The emphasis is on a loving God who will receive ultimately everyone into heaven, no matter the life he leads. Folks, this is false theology. But it makes people feel secure in a lethargic spiritual condition and living in very worldly ways. Now, does this mean that God is a demanding taskmaster, demands perfection from us, or he is uncaring? It does not. What it means is God is a loving God. He is a merciful God, but he is also a holy God. And, and Peter could make it more clear. He says, be ye holy for I am holy. I'm going to give you an illustration here at the end that I hope illustrates this, but I almost am afraid to get it because much like a parable, there might be some things in it that don't completely line up, but I hope it will make the point, okay? So at home, um, in our uh, permanent pasture to the south, it's about seven acres. When we first moved there, the thing was infested with thistles, so bad that the thistle police came around and said, you got to do something about those thistles. So what I did initially is I, I hired the co-op to spray the thistles. And that took care of the thistles. I did that for three, four years, and it did a good job. But um, eventually the co-op quit doing that, and, and so now I have a problem again. So we just waited a few years, and uh, the thistles didn't come back right away, but pretty soon they started raising their ugly heads again. I'm told a thistle seed can last for 40 years or something like that and sod. So they, they started growing again. So now what do I do? I still have to take care of my thistles. What so happens, I have two boys here that need things to do during the day. And um, so I made a, a deal with them, and I said, I'll buy you two good shovels, and I will pay you so much an hour to go out and dig thistles. All right? Now, you don't have to work all day at that, but it would like if you would work an hour a day at digging thistles. Here's the shovel. I'll, I'll pay you this much money. And I will have to say they've been fairly diligent. They haven't done a lot of grumbling. They've gone out, they've dug thistles, and we've pretty much kept the thistles at bay thanks to um, thanks to this little thing we got going here. They do the work and I pay them, okay? So we got this thing going here. Now, what if my boys would decide, um, oh, we're not going to use the shovels. It's, you know, this this is crazy, but... Maybe they decide they don't feel like walking to the shed and getting the shovels. It's just quicker to go to the field without the shovels and, and dig thistles. Well, can you imagine what a job that would be to dig thistles without a shovel? I mean, it would be an unbelievable hard job. And most likely they would quit digging thistles because they, they would go on strike and say, we're not doing this, it's too hard, whatever. Well, now we have a problem because uh, my thistles, my pasture looks terrible again. The thistles aren't getting dug. They could use the tools and get it done, but they're choosing not to do that. All right? Now, that's much like us. God has given us the tools to live holy lives. All we got to do is take the tools and use them. And if we don't, that's not God's fault. That's my fault. All right, now let's take this one more, one more step. So the other day I noticed that there were some thistles that had escaped the shovel. And these things were fast going to head, and it was time to get them thistles out of there. So what I did is I went and got the shovel and went out and dug the thistles myself. I, I didn't even, I don't even know if the boys even knew that, but that's what I did. Now, I'm not up, upset with my boys 
for missing those thistles because they worked diligently in those field in that field. Those thistles happened to escape their shovel. They missed them, whatever. I'm not in the least bit upset with them about that. And I would like to I would like to suggest that that is much like our our relationship with our heavenly Father. If we are diligently with a perfect heart and good intentions working in the thistle field, okay, we're bringing forth fruit, we're doing our job, we're using the tools that the Father has given us, but we miss a few thistles. I think God knows our heart, okay? Now, now, don't misread me, and here's where the whole thing breaks down. You may go away saying, ah, you know, I can harbor a little sin over here, you know, and it's okay. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that God is not a demanding taskmaster. That's what I'm saying. If you look at the if you look at the uh, sin of David with Bathsheba, David deserved to die. Did David die? David did not die. He received God's mercy because it says that David was a man after God's own heart. Right in the day of Hezekiah, when Hezekiah wanted to make his Passover, and they realized they did not have time to get, for everyone to go through the traditional. Uh, cleansing. What does it say happened? Hezekiah prayed and he said, God, you know our hearts. That's exactly the words. And God honored that prayer. He knew their hearts, even though they didn't get every thistle dug, right? And, and on and on it goes. Asa, he didn't receive that mercy because it says, God told him, you do not have a perfect heart. I hope that makes sense to you. Um, God looks on our hearts. If we want a good relationship with God, we have to follow his directives. How do I deepen my relationship with God? Accept the gifts he has given me. Accept the forgiveness that comes through Christ's blood. Use the tools that he has given me to live a holy life. And what will happen when I do that? I will love my brothers and sisters and even my enemies sincerely. I will willingly choose to forgive others and forgo temptations to hold grudges and grievances. I will walk circumspectly. I will approve the things that are excellent. I will, just like the house of Stephanus, I will addict myself to the ministry of the saints. And I will hunger and thirst for righteousness, and I will be filled. Folks, we've got to bring this to an end. I thought, what, what would be a good summary for this, if I could summarize this message in one verse, and you're probably thinking, well, why didn't you just do that? Why did you, why did you sit us through all this 45 minutes when you could have summarized it in one verse? Well, I'll give you the summary right now. In 1 John 5, 3, a very simple verse, but you, you think about it. For this is the love of God. That's how the verse starts out. For this is the love of God. Now, if you had to explain the love of God, what would it be? Does anybody know how that verse ends? For this is the love of God. I'll read it to you. That we keep his commandments. And now it qualifies the commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. Isn't that something? The onus is on us. You want to receive the love of God? Keep his commandments. And then the qualifier is his commandments are not grievous. May the Lord bless us. Let's go for prayer.